Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. It would be hard to have a passage of scripture that's more countercultural than the one we have today. It's just like completely opposed to everything that our culture tells us. And it's not just opposed in words and concepts, it's opposed in, in concrete ways. Because this is the story of God establishing a covenant with Noah after the flood and with his sons and with the animals. And then his establishing the sign of the covenant, which is the rainbow. And if you're half awake today, even half awake, you know that the rainbow today is the image of the homosexualist movement. And you may never have thought about it, but it would be hard to have a more malicious and evil twisting of a symbol than what was given by God as the sign and seal of his covenant never again to wipe out the earth by means of a flood, be turned around to be a symbol of the 50 shades of sexuality that is modern gender, right? And so every week we open the Bible and we read it. And the minute we read anything from the Bible, what we see is it's contrary to everything we hear every week. But did you hear what our scripture lesson said? Our scripture lesson said what? The Lord. Now what is Lord? The king. The boss of all. The Lord where is he? Is in his holy temple. And so let all the earth send him a a Facebook update, right? Let all the earth tell him what they think of the Bible. Let all the earth tell him what they want the rainbow to mean. Let all the earth tell him what particular point on the continuum of gender identity they are. Let all the earth accuse him of homophobia. But but that's not what it says. It says the Lord is in his holy temple... Let all the earth keep silence before him. And I hope you grew up in a home where occasionally your mother or your father said, Silence! Don't you say another word. I mean, every child at some point needs to be told that, right? I know many times I needed to be told that. (laughs) And this is God. And God says, I am in my holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before me. And so today, I want your minds very active, but I really don't want to know now what you think about what God says. I want you to listen to him. And to be like a little bird, we'll see them soon in the nest, right? What's the posture of a bird when it's being fed? It's not saying anything. 
Its mouth is open and it wants to be fed. And that's how we approach the word of God. You say, well, if God were speaking, then I'd do that. And I say, that's how God set it up. He wants sinful men to preach to you. But it is God's word I will preach. You examine what I say according not to Facebook. You examine it by what is printed in the Bible. And if I'm unfaithful to that, don't listen. But if I'm faithful to that, you should be like this. And ask God to give you a heart that's soft. Ask God to take away your pride so that you will hear what he says. And be changed. Okay? Now please stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for his word. This is from Genesis 9, verses 8 to 17. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Let me just make a comment before I keep reading. Do any of you know, other than David Canfield, do any of you know the meaning of the word prolix? Brian does. Andrew does. Ben does. <laughs> David's raising his hand because he learned it already this morning, right? <laughs> Jeff Ewer this morning, I asked the first congregation, and, and he, nobody knew it. Wayne Huck didn't know it, right? But Jeff raised his hand. He knew it, but he had, he had put it into his iPhone. Okay, so Brian, give us the definition of prolix. Saying in many, but really it means saying in too many words. It's almost always pejorative. How many of you know the meaning of the word pejorative? Now, that was a joke. It's, it's important that you know the meaning of the word prolix because Martin Luther uses that word to describe what we're about to read. All right? This is too many words from God. He actually says the Holy Spirit here is prolix. He says the Holy Spirit is using too many words here. Now watch it as we read it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even... We're already prolix, aren't we? Even every beast of the earth. Well, we've already said that before, haven't we? I establish my covenant... We've already said that, haven't we? I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you, and we've heard that before, haven't we? Every living creature that is, we've heard that before, haven't we? With you. For all successive generations, I set my bow, and the Hebrew word for bow and rainbow are the same word. So you could just say, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud. Again, that's the second time he said that. And I will remember my covenant, which is, and this is how many times, between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Do you see why Luther said it's prolix? 
This is repent. I mean, it's redundant, 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 right? When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, the reason that Martin Luther calls it prolix, redundant, verbose, which I am, all right? The reason that Martin Luther calls it prolix is to explain why it is that God used so many words, all right? And so if you were just to think about that and think, well, why does God use so many words and why is he so repetitious at this point? And then we remember that all scriptures God breathed and profitable. And then we think, well, there must be a reason why God's saying it over and over again. Listen to Martin Luther's description of why. He says, Noah and his people were in great need of such comfort. Now stop for a second and think. You know how they always accuse us of hating homosexuals? When we call homosexuals to repent, you know how they always accuse us of hating, of being homophobic, of of just being nasty, right? And so the idea is that anybody that calls any particular sin, sin, it's hate speech. You don't call anything sin because when you call it sin, you're, you're just saying that that person is a sinner and you're good. Right? And so you're engaging in hate speech because you're just showing your superiority to them. Now, I could right now ask how many of you have suffered under homosexual temptations. And and you could raise your hand. And then I could ask you how many of you suffer under adultery temptations. And you could raise your hand. Then I could ask how many of you have murdered and a number of you would raise your hand and you say, no, 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 we don't have any murders here. And I say, yeah, actually, yes, we have a number of murderers in this church. We have a number of adulterers, a number of fornicators, a number of homosexuals, a number of jealous people, greedy people. We have every sin in the book here. And so when we call adultery sin, do you think I'm engaging in hate? hate speech. Don't commit adultery. Oh, there he goes again. He's so nasty. You know, he's setting himself up on a pedestal and he's being self-righteous and, and he's, he's like condemning people that commit adultery. Yep. Why? Because I'm an adulterer. Jesus says, any man that looks with lust on a woman has committed adultery. Every one of you is a murderer, especially those of you that have a driver's license. You know how many times you could have killed the people that you're around when you're driving. And you have a lethal instrument in your hand. That's why generally we don't allow people to walk around with a gun in their hand. That's why that police officer likely murdered 
And that's why you want to be very careful with the character of police officers because they're always walking around with lethal instruments. But you are always driving a lethal instrument. And the fact is, the way you drive, there are many times when somebody could well have died because of the risks you took. And that's murder. And so when people say that Christians call homosexuality sin because... They're engaging in hate speech and they're homophobic. I say, so when we say adultery is wrong, is that because we're adulterophobic? And when we say fornication is wrong, is that because we're fornicophobic? And when we say that you shouldn't have sex with animals, are we bestiophobic? No. It's because when it comes to sexual sin... This is sin at a level that is so intense because of intimacy that there's no way that you can commit sexual sin without bringing every other sin on top of it. David, all, he, all King David had to do was commit adultery and then immediately he murders the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. How many of the murders in our country of unborn children in the womb, of adults, of children. How many of them do you think are caused because of sexual sin? And so the whole narrative of our culture, which is that anybody that calls anything sin is homophobic or is engaging in hate speech, the opposite is true. It's our culture that hates homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators because they say, do it, give yourself to it. And then murders happen, and then children are left without a father and without a mother, and every kind of evil comes out of it. And they're the ones that supposedly love homosexuals, and we're the ones that hate them. I want you to know that from the beginning of this church, we've had a number of male and female homosexual people in this church. And we love them. We call them to repent and to flee. We have a number of adulterers here today. We have a number of murderers here today. We love them. We call them to repent. And we cry with them. We are the ones who love homosexuals. And the world despises them. And the way they keep them at a distance is they say, Go ahead. Do your thing. Do what you gotta do. I can't tell you. Gonna suck at you. Do your thing. Ha 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 ha. And that's love? <laughs> this is the decadence of the 60s, and now it's run amok. But the church loves people who are struggling with sin. And our church has always had homosexuals in it. Male and female. And you say, really, where? And I say, our church has always had adulterers in it. And you say, <laughs> don't tell me where. And that just shows how perverse we are. Homosexuality is boring. Christians don't say that homosexuality is wrong because Christians are homophobic and unloving. We say homosexuality is wrong because it destroys souls, and we love souls. Now, what, where does this come out of our text? Well, <laughs> let me tell you, it comes out of our text. But let's start with the issue of Noah looking out of the ark and seeing all the neighbors that he is a preacher of righteousness to drowning. The floods come up, 
and he's in the ark of the church, and he looks out, and what does he see? He sees them treading water. And then he sees them go down. And you want to tell me that that righteous man rejoiced at the death of the wicked? No, he didn't. He loved them. He cried. Remember that the Bible tells us that God is not happy with the death of the wicked. He does not rejoice in that. He is not willing that any should perish. And you're going to tell me that Noah was a righteous man and Noah rejoiced in the death of the wicked? You're going to tell me that true Christians today rejoice in saying that homosexuality is a sin? No. Noah did not rejoice in seeing the adulterers and the homosexuals die in the flood. And we don't rejoice as we see the approaching grave of homosexuals and adulterers. We don't rejoice. We cry. We plead. We invite to church. We have them sit under the word and then our hearts break when we see them harden their hearts against God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is true. All men are liars. And we rescue the perishing. That's it. Why do we do it? Because we've been perishing. Noah loved the people who were drowning in the waters around the ark. And Noah, his hair stood on end every minute of every, and at night he had nightmares surrounded by the death of every human being on the face of the earth. And so... When God set him on the top of the mountain with his little family, what did God do? God comforted him. God comforted him. That's the reason God is prolix, verbose, repetitive, because Noah and his family are, are absolutely at the edge of insanity because of the death and suffering they've seen. And this is what Martin Luther says about it. Martin Luther says, Noah and his people were in great need of such comfort. A man who has been humbled by God is unable to forget his hurt and pain, for affliction makes a far deeper impression than an act of kindness. We observe the same reaction in children even though a caressing mother tries to calm them with rattles and other allurements after they have been chastened with the rod, after they've been spanked, the grief still persists in their heart to such a degree that they have to sigh frequently and sob bitterly. Isn't that precious? How much more difficult it is for a conscience that has experienced God's wrath and the terrors of death to let comfort come in. These experiences remember, remain so firmly entrenched later on that a heart becomes fearful and terrified, even in the face of kindnesses and comforting words. It is for this reason that God shows himself benevolent in such a variety of ways and takes such extraordinary delight in pouring forth compassion like a mother who is caressing 
and petting her child in order that it may finally begin to forget its tears and smile at its mother. Guys, come on, smile. That's drop-dead gorgeous. Such a tender picture of God's kindness to us. That he's like a mother, he brings us a rattle, and when that doesn't do the trick, then he just takes his hand and he rubs our face and he caresses us. And that's what he's doing with Noah and with his family. There, there. There, there, sweetie. Verse 8, then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying. Now, you remember how last time we were here studying Noah, I made the point of saying that Noah and his sons were the ones that God addressed. And so it says it again, so I'm going to emphasize it again. God speaks to the representatives of the family, and that means you men. And it's not because God was conforming himself to the chauvinistic culture. God was the one that set it up that Adam was the representative of Eve. God set it up that Noah and his sons were the representatives of the race and of their families because God is the father. And so the man has that representative. So God the father represents the Trinity, right? The son and the Holy Spirit. But God the Father has an economic authority in the household, as the husband and the father does. Now, does that mean that a woman is a lesser man? Does that mean that a child is a lesser woman, mother? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean that the children and the mothers are inferior to the father? No, because in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal. And yet God is the Father. So notice that our text begins with God speaking to Noah and to his sons. Next, this is what God said. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now what does it mean to establish a covenant? Here we have the first explicit mention of a covenant in Scripture, and the word and concept come from God. The word covenant in this passage is repeated seven times. And so it is the central concept, the ordering principle of this passage. A covenant is a solemn promise, an engagement, a contract. And there are many covenants in Scripture, a number which are made by God and a number which are made between men with each other. We have here God's covenant with Noah. We also have God's covenant with Abraham. We have God's covenant with Israel. And most gloriously, we have God's covenant of grace through the precious blood of his son. And we celebrate this in the Lord's Supper, which is the Christian's hope. We read in Matthew 26, When he had taken a cup, our Savior, having given thanks, gave it to his disciples saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus made covenant with all who look to his body and blood in faith 
to forgive them their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And Christian, this is our hope and faith that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will fulfill their covenant with us, giving us eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So he's going to make a covenant. Verse 8, Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And so here, God makes a solemn promise in his own name. He himself is the one who establishes this covenant, and therefore, it's not possible for it to be broken. Can man break his promises? Can man break his oaths? Can man break his contracts? Can man break his vows? Absolutely, and that's much of what the courts adjudicate in our land, is the mess, the wickedness, the sin that comes after we break our promises. Can God break his promises? No, God always keeps his word. He cannot break his promises. He cannot lie. In Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So then what is the covenant that God establishes here, speaking to Noah and his sons? He says, verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And so this is God's solemn contract, promise, or covenant. That he will not cut off, and that just means kill, all flesh again by a flood. And so this is another way we know that the flood was universal, because it's clear the promise is he won't do again what he'd done, and what he had done was wipe out all the flesh of all the earth. All right? What does this promise not say? It does not say that God will never again cut off all flesh. It does not say that God will never again cut off all flesh in this country or that country by a flood. It does not say God will not send floods that will cut off or kill many hundreds of thousands or even millions. It's specific. God promises he'll never again remove all men from all the earth by a universal flood that covers the whole earth. And so that's the covenant that God establishes. Next, with whom does God establish the covenant? Verse 9, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And that's interesting. This covenant is established by God with Noah and his sons. They're listening to God. The covenant is also established with us because there's not one man or woman who's ever lived since Noah who isn't a descendant of Noah. Every human being who's ever lived, this covenant is established with. It's established with you. All right? But weird. It's established with all the animals. God is binding himself with promises made to animals. Now, it is fascinating that God has such care and concern for mute beasts that he establishes his covenant here with them, with all the birds, all the cattle, oxen, cows, goats, sheep, as well as zebras and snakes and groundhogs and skunks and chipmunks and Julia's squirrels and Joe's carp and Lawrence's catfish, except I'm not sure because they swim. 
So I can't figure that one out. And Dwayne's deer and Jason's poor rabbits and the lions of Africa and the koala bears of Australia and the pandas of China and the gorillas of Rwanda and the antelope of Greenland and even Dr. Spady's pigs and your children's gerbil and I must reluctantly agree that David and Annie and Kimmy's cats and Susie's birds are all included. Every beast of the earth. And so this is who God establishes his covenant with. Noah, his sons, their families, all of their descendants, including us, and every single animal who will ever live. Now, what is the sign of the covenant? All covenants have a sign confirming the solemn oath and promise of God. The sign of the covenant God made with Abram was circumcision. The sign of the new covenant of grace through the death of our Lord is what? The sign of the new covenant is called a sacrament. And there are two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. The old covenant... One of the sacraments was what? Circumcision. The new covenant, baptism in the Lord's Supper. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And so we read in Romans 4 that Abram received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And so this is the reason we speak of baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, baptism has replaced circumcision of the old covenant. And so in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, we read in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not made, with, made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And you're going, well, what is the circumcision of Christ? And then it says, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so circumcision's done, and now it's baptism. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world, and he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So a sacrament is a physical sign and seal of God's covenant. God lowers himself to us and gives us physical things to confirm his promises because he knows how weak we are. He lowered himself to having the physical sign of circumcision, and now he lowers himself Instead of just being ethereal, mystical, spiritual beings, we have baptism, which is water, and it gets wet, and the child cries. And we have the Lord's Supper, which is the cup and the bread. And these things confirm that God is our God, and he's lowering himself to us. Now, what was the sign of God's covenant with Noah? 
God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a first sign of a covenant between me and the earth. The sign of the covenant God here makes with Noah is the rainbow. Now listen, would you prefer to have a pastor who's a ditz brain here? Would you like me to be ignorant of the abuse of the rainbow in our culture and just act like I'm a holy man, sit it on top of Simon Stylites Tower or back in a cave someplace, you know, without any awareness of anything going on and what the rainbows mean every time I see it on the back of a Prius? Don't you wish that I was a ditz brain? Listen, I can't preach the text without pointing out the horrible perversion of the rainbow by the wicked around us. It's not because I'm homophobic. It's not because I'm into hate speech. But how can you take the rainbow, which is God's promise that he will never again wipe out the whole earth by a flood, and twist that to be a symbol of those who remove every bit of beauty of the relationship of man and woman in marriage. Every bit of the beauty of the intimacy of a man and a maid together. Who obliterate the diversity that God gave to the sexes. Absolutely obliterate it. And how do they do it? Well, they say, look at a rainbow. It's got all these different gradations of color, and that's how God made sexuality. That's how creation made sexuality. And so instead of talking about sex, which is bifurcation based on body parts, one or the other, one or the other, one or the other, let's talk about gender. And it's just this huge continuum. And you can stand anywhere on that continuum you want. Because sexuality is so diverse. And what you end up with is what? You don't end up with the colors God gave, which are male and female. You end up with male, female, male. You end up with male, male, female, male. You end up with male, male, female, female. You end up with male, female, female, male. You end up with male, female, male, 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 female, 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 male, shades of gray. The rainbow's gone. All there is is mud. They've obliterated the beauty of man and woman. And then made a principle out of it. And then claimed God's beautiful sign of the covenant as a representation of their mud. And what? I'm supposed to act like I don't know about it? You want a ditz brain as a pastor? You want me to be... Just get up here and say some things, and then you can go home. I'm colorblind, so I don't know what rainbows are. Let's move right along here now. <laughs> Listen. The beauty of sexuality is the bifurcation of sexuality. Bi means two, splitting into two. Sexuality is two. It's not 50. It's not 100. It's not shades of gray. It's man it's woman, and this is what Jesus said. From the beginning, he created them, 
Male and fe- this is Jesus' words. From the beginning he created the male and female. And so when a baby comes out, the doctor doesn't say, well, we have number 47 on 50 shades of gray. The doctor looks, well, nowadays it's not the doctor, it's, it's, the, it's the ultrasound technician. <laughs> the ultrasound technician, I see it. It done be a boy. And you know what he's looking at. Right? Listen. Don't allow those who trample on the beautiful diversity that God's made of man and woman. Don't allow them to trample on it with the sign of the covenant. Recently, I was saying that we should use a rainbow as a symbol of our church, and somebody was in horror. No, we can't do that. That's the symbol of the homosexuals. It's like, dude, it's not their symbol. So what? Everything that's trampled upon, we should stop having anything to do with, right? Everything that wicked people are able to solly and muddy and pervert, we're supposed to stay away from it, stay away from it, right? And so music, I mean, you want to see perversion, go into the music school. And so we have no music in our church, you know? Well, people get in front of people and sing, and it's all vanity, and so we're going to only do our singing as a choir from the back of the church. Remember that, Curtis, when, when there was that movement in the church? The, 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 and I said, okay, fine, if you want to sing from the back of the church so there's no egos, then I'm going to preach from the back. Well, no, 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 you have to be in front. We have to see you. I say, why? I don't add anything to it. I detract. Well, no, but we want to see you as you. I said, well, do you, don't, you don't think they want to see you as you sing? Come on. Why should we let the pagans have all the beauty? The rainbow belongs to us. Put a rainbow on your car and say, I believe in the glorious diversity of male and female. And it doesn't get any more diverse than that. And if you don't believe me, just get married. And there's nothing more diverse in sexuality than a man and a woman married. It's unbelievably diverse. I don't care whether it's the toothpaste. There's a male and a female principle. Think about it. The cap... And you look at me and you go, oh, there, there goes Tim again. And I say, have you ever been in a hardware store? <laughs> There's male and female everywhere. I haven't figured it out yet. Come on, people, lighten up. Don't let the pagans have sexuality. We're all sexual. We're sexual when we go to bed. We're sexual when we get in the morning. And we're sexual when we dream. And so God makes the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. And it's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And I'm colorblind, and I know it. I mean rainbows. (laughs) Oh, It's unbelievably beautiful. And every time we see it, we understand that God was very sad 
about his judgment. And he stroked and caressed Noah and his family after the horror and said, every time you see the rainbow, I will never do it again. I'll never do it again. Now, one final thing. Do you remember who God made this covenant with? God made the covenant with Noah. He made it with his, all his descendants and all the animals and birds, right? Now, what's the significance of that? The significance of that, I like having plants up here. Don't I look better? I guess that would work sort of here, but it's not quite as tall. The significance of the animals being included in God's covenant is, number one, that God has compassion on the animals. But the other thing is, can an animal have faith? No. And so this covenant is unilateral. It's not bilateral. The covenant of grace is bilateral in that we have faith, and on that basis we receive baptism in the Lord's Supper. We have faith in Jesus. But where it comes to the covenant with Noah, it's not bilateral because animals can't agree. Unilateral. In other words, it does not matter how evil this world gets, and we're watching it get evil. It doesn't matter how evil it gets, that covenant will stay. Because it's made with animals. And so at this point... (laughs) It's kind of a relief to us, isn't it? Because we can't mess it up. Because you and I both know that if there is a way to trample on the good that God's given us, you and I will find a way to do it. But this, it doesn't matter. God has made his covenant, and it's unilateral. So, that's the story. It's the story of the rainbow. And it's not a story in, you know, like Hemingway. It's history. That's the account, the historical account of why the rainbow exists today and what God is saying to us through the rainbow. And it's a wonderful account. And it should calm our hearts that God cares not just about sinful men and women, but he cares about the animals, every single animal that lives, every single one. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will help us not to be afraid when we're accused of not loving adulterers, and of not loving the greedy, and of not loving homosexuals. We pray that you will help us to be salt and light, and to be a preacher of righteousness so that there may be those who are saved from the lies of our culture. We thank you for the rainbow. We thank you for the northern lights. We thank you for colors. We thank you, Father, for all the indicators in nature of your character, especially your kindness and patience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.